This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We, the German Führer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister, have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. The voice you just heard there was Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, announcing his success at the Munich Peace Conference. Neville Chamberlain is forever associated with the idea of appeasement. Originally, appeasement was the idea of a gentleman's agreement, but in the years after the Second World War, it became synonymous with weakness, with a kind of moral collapse in the face of power and fascism. For the 20 years after the Second World War, the feeling was that the appeasers had almost seized control of the British government and sold Europe down the river into the face of war. And then AJP Taylor comes along in 1964 with Origins of the Second World War, and he's the first person really to try and revise this idea. And he put forward the idea that the appeasers were taking a rational form of action in the face of the circumstances they were faced with. So that's the subject of this podcast. Was appeasement a good idea or not? And because it's the kind of thing you'll get for an essay question, there's two of us here and we'll be taking each side of the argument. One of us arguing for, one of us arguing against. So if you would like to kick off with, yep. why is appeasement a good idea? Okay, so I think before I do though, the first thing that we need to make sure that everybody understands is that appeasement is a reflection of the time and that the people who were arguing for appeasement were not seen generally as doing a bad job. There were some people at the time um, who criticised it, obviously, but for most people, this was a, as Taylor suggested, it was a rational thing to do. Mm. So with that in mind, it, it, some of these arguments make more sense. Yeah. Um, I suppose the first really key point is that the people of Britain just didn't want another war. Mm-hmm. It's not been that long since the First World War came to an end. There are lots and lots of people who fought in that war. Uh, you know, they've got their own children now. They don't want a repeat of that devastation. Mm. And so, um, you know, and there's different aspects to that as well. It's, they don't want the death. They don't want the killing. But you know, economically as well, they don't want to pay the price for this. And um, warfare had moved on as well. Yeah. So in the 1930s, when appeasement became policy, we weren't, we weren't talking about you know the old-fashioned trench warfare. This was a total war that people could see. And they'd seen it in places like Spain um, during the Spanish Civil War when the Germans had bombed Guernica. And you know there was a general feeling in Great Britain that this 
could happen to us. We are not safe on this island anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, trench warfare was one thing, but we could have had we could have the the Luftwaffe German Air Force doing the same to our towns, our cities, and our families as what happened in Spain. Yeah. So that, that, that there's that general feeling. We just don't want war. I mentioned economics as well. It's not just about the the, the, the cost of war, but it's also, this was the era of the Great Depression. So people were more concerned about having jobs, about rebuilding British industry, rebuilding uh, the British economy, and many people viewed war as something that would jeopardise that as well. Um, the League of Nations was no longer... Um, an effective body yeah. as well so um, the people of Britain Neville Chamberlain they considered other options to try and keep the peace mm-hmm. so um, appeasement was an idea this idea of personal diplomacy you know, Chamberlain thought he could trust Hitler he mm-hmm. thought he could strike a deal with Hitler so in the absence of the League of Nations um, we will work it out as gentlemen, as you mentioned, actually, a sort of gentleman's agreement, mm. and um, take Hitler at his word. Okay. Um, another point would be that Hitler's Germany, although wasn't an ideal friend, they were seen as a lesser evil yes. compared yes. to Russia yeah. and the communists. So... You know, and, it, and that wasn't just something that was, that feeling wasn't just held at the top of British society. That was a general feeling throughout British society. Communism was a greater evil, uh, and okay, we didn't like Hitler's fascism, but if the Germans recover, um, they will be a very useful barrier yeah. between us mm-hmm. and this even greater threat, this red menace on yeah. the other side of Europe. And the final argument that you can use to um, support appeasement is that there were a number of people that felt that Germany had genuine grievances. The Treaty of Versailles was a very harsh punishment. It wasn't necessarily a punishment that the British government wished to impose. It had been imposed more at the behest of the French. Um, And if Hitler wanted to remilitarize the Rhineland. That's okay. He was marching into his own backyard, as, as one uh, British politician said. Yeah. Um, if he wanted to um, bring all German speakers together, that was okay as well, to an extent. It was self-determination. It wasn't um, anything that... He wasn't invading anybody. He wasn't hurting anybody. He's just bringing people into the German sort of... Uh, the Reich. So, yeah, the, the, the Treaty of Versailles too harsh and some of the demands that Hitler was making were not viewed at the time as being outrageous they were yeah. they were actually okay and we could live with them and hence the policy of appeasement okay um, I suppose the main arguments against appeasement and there's an interesting mix of hindsight and information that was available at the time um, but if I take the, the sort of the last one that you mentioned first uh, the Treaty of Versailles was mm. harsh. There's no doubt about it, but it's the law. Britain is a signatory to it, and even though they've gone against that with the Anglo Naval uh, Anglo German Naval Agreement, um, they should abide by the international treaty document that they signed. So, 
basically turning a blind eye and then allowing Germany to override all these provisions of the Treaty of Versailles is showing a complete disregard for, yeah. you know, international, international justice. Law, yeah. um, the next one, I would think, is, is, is the, the charge that you can level against Chamberlain personally, which is, since 1933, there have been a number of examples of Hitler breaking his word. It's, it's been seen in a number of times. I have no further territorial demands mm-hmm. to make. I am not going to do anything with the Rhineland. Oh, I've remilitarized the Rhineland. I have no interest in an Anschluss with Austria. Oh, look, I've had an Anschluss with Austria. Time and time again, he has lied. And yet, for some reason, possibly driven by necessity, it has to be said, um, Chamberlain is taking Hitler at his word. I'm not here to argue the the thing about um, Hitler being a madman because to be honest that is an irrelevant argument when you're talking about appeasement what you're not talking about whether he's a rational actor or not what you're talking about is could you have known that he was untrustworthy and I think Chamberlain had plenty of evidence to say mm. that he was untrustworthy yeah. and there's plenty of people to tell him that and as plenty well. of people yeah. to tell him yeah um, there's two sort of ones again on the idea of perception and you can look at this from two ways the first one is every single time that Chamberlain or anybody else involved in this policy gives Hitler what he wants they make Hitler look more powerful they make him look more they make him look stronger they strengthen his position at home and his ability to override the generals and the advice he's getting at home in Germany and they also strengthen his position on the international stage and that makes him more confident and makes him more likely to demand more things because he's been given it. We saw uh, earlier on that Hitler was fairly confident that there wasn't going to be any intervention in the Anschluss, which is why he was comfortable going ahead with it. He knew that Schussnig wasn't going to get any support. Mm-hmm. And the flip side of that is it makes Britain look weak and it makes Chamberlain look weak and it makes Hitler think that he can take advantage of this because one thing you got to say about Hitler the man had a talent for sniffing out weakness he mm-hmm. could spot yes. when someone was you know was corruptible or was dealable with or there was a way to get around them or the people who were susceptible to bullying he could spot that and i think he saw that in chamberlain every time there was this backing down every time yeah um and the last thing I would say is that you can attack appeasement on moral grounds. Britain had a moral duty to protect yes. these people. Britain had sat in the Paris Peace Conference and had drawn up the borders of Czechoslovakia, of Poland, of the Polish Corridor, had decided about these things. Whether they thought it was too harsh or not, they have created these countries. You cannot, therefore turn your back on them in their hour of need you you lose the right to be seen as a great power if you do that and like it or not by setting himself up as the personal guy who's who's doing these negotiations that's yeah. the role that Chamberlain's taking on and he abrogates his moral responsibility when he does it yeah so so overall I mean it's, it's clear arguments for and against the peace mm-hmm. But I think it'd be really useful for students to, to see that with hindsight, yeah, it's much easier to criticise yeah. the policy. 
Well, um, having said that, though, at the time, there's a certain few bits and pieces. Let's take, for example, the Munich Conference. Yeah, I was just going to bring into that, yeah. So, I mean, if, if you look at the Munich Conference, the fact that Czechoslovakia is not invited and the fact that the USSR is not invited immediately robs it of moral legitimacy, I would say. Yeah. And It's another example of Britain and France acting in their own interest, yes. which they do all the way through. The yeah, years. absolutely. Yeah. And I suppose that's one of the things, isn't it? The appeasement policy is designed to suit Britain and protect Britain. Because I don't necessarily think the French, really, certainly Deladier, no, is absolutely was. opposed to the idea of appeasement. Yeah, he was he was pressurised by the French government yeah. and the military yeah. into agreeing with the British. Yeah. So yeah, he, he wasn't a personal, you know, personally a supporter of appeasement. He was forced into it, more mm. or less. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think you just have to, you, to to look at appeasement properly. You've got to look at it from yeah. the perspective of the people at the time, and for the for the vast majority of British people, oh yes, it it was certainly a, a policy that they could justify. Uh, it's it, the crowds. Yeah. You heard them in the clip at the beginning, and yeah. you see them if you watch the newsreel when Chamberlain comes back from that meeting and he's waving yeah, his piece, piece of paper. paper. In the air, yeah. the crowd goes wild. The, I think the interesting thing that colours the argument about appeasement is what we said at the beginning: that twenty years after everybody's, it's it's almost the equivalent of what happened in Germany after the war, where everybody's going Nazis. No, I wasn't a Nazi. Yeah. I, I was on holiday for twenty years from nineteen thirty-three. I've got no idea what happened. And everybody in the British political establishment, yeah. after the war, is going appeasement. No, never yeah. heard of it. Not me. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Somebody else was it. them. Was somebody else. Yeah. And it wasn't really until Taylor started to write about it that it yeah. just re-emphasised the fact that everybody liked the policy. Yeah. Everybody thought it was the right thing to yeah. do. And, you know, we have mentioned these opponents as well. Mm. It was Lowe, wasn't there, the guy yeah. who, who, was, who was very um, yeah. opposed to appeasement. And, and Churchill, and Churchill obviously. Yeah. Well, I was going to come to yeah. I think it, it shouldn't be lost on you that Churchill becomes the war leader. Yeah. Because, because he's been positioning yeah. himself throughout the 1930s. And he's as, been very consistent yeah. in his opinions on how to deal with Hitler. Yeah. And by the time we get to 1939, he can genuinely stand up and say, told you, yeah. I was right. Yeah. Um, is there a case to be made? I mean, we're going to be doing a podcast later on about the Nazi-Soviet pact. But is there a case to be made that the policy of appeasement drives Stalin and Hitler, well certainly Stalin, to a point where he's willing to make a deal with Hitler. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Stalin, he doesn't trust Hitler. No. And he's very, very unsure about Britain and France. Yeah. And if, you know, you put yourself in this man's shoes, you're on the other side of Europe, you're looking in on yeah. these events... Are you really going to throw your eggs in with Britain and France no. when the way that they're acting? No. Stalin, you know, he was like Chamberlain looking after British interests. Yeah. Stalin's looking after his own interests and Russia's yeah. interests. The, the Nazi-Soviet pact, I mean, as I say, we'll get on to it, I suppose. But the Nazi-Soviet pact is, from Stalin's point of view, perfectly rational. Yeah. Because setting up all those trade deals protects you from a German invasion if you are dealing with a rational actor on the other side yeah. which I suppose is the same argument you can make with appeasement, appeasement yeah. if you have a rational actor on the other side you've got nothing to worry about mm. um, uh, I was just going to say I suppose the other thing you could say in Chamberlain's defence 
is that when it is obvious that the policy of appeasement has no longer worked after the collapse of Czechoslovakia, yeah, then he stops. Then he stops, yeah, and he he, he doesn't do it completely. He still justifies his mm-hmm. his decisions, but yeah, yeah, he does. You're right. But it's I suppose that tells you that it's not a matter of ideology, is it? He wasn't no. doing it because he believed in peace at all costs. No, he was doing it because he felt like it was the that right thing yeah. at the time. So, I suppose there's, there's three possible answers you can go with, possibly four. First answer is appeasement was a bad idea. Yep. What do we think of that? Yeah, well, I think that, as we've mentioned before, people at the time said it was a bad idea, you're giving this guy encouragement, Hitler is going to take heart from the fact that he knows Britain and France aren't willing to stand up for him. Yeah. So it pushes him into making more and more demands, yeah. which he, you know, Hitler's a risk taker, he knows yeah, that they're risky yeah. demands, yeah. But he's the supreme game player as well. Yeah. He, he knows that if he pushes, Britain and France have got form. They mm-hmm. basically just put their hands yeah. up and say, okay, you can have it. So, yeah, th- there's a lot of weight behind the argument okay. that appeasement was a bad idea. And then we have the one that appeasement, even if, if we take the long view, was a good idea. Can we say that appeasement was good? Not, uh, not just at the time. Yeah. Can we say appeasement was a good idea? Um I think it's it's more difficult to argue that with the benefit of hindsight yeah. because we know what happened in the long term. It didn't actually pay off and it maybe forced Hitler and Stalin... I suppose it... put forced Stalin anyway yeah. into a, a closer relationship I, with Hitler. I suppose it buys Britain a bit buys of time. Yeah, it's a good point. Buys us time. And it was very popular, of course. Yes. You know, people, which as an elected politician you yeah. can't ignore. Yeah. And then I suppose the third answer is that it was an understandable course of action at the time. Yeah. And I think that's probably the, the one that I would go for. Mm. At the time, they were trying to avoid war. Yeah. Uh, they don't have crystal balls, despite what people like Churchill would have said. They can't, they can't predict the future. No. Um, they could have had a good guess. But I think Chamberlain was being optimistic. He was hopeful. So put it in context, it yeah. makes sense. I think my the one thing that I would always highlight is that in the same way that Britain and France had form for rolling over, yeah. basically collapsing like a cheap deck chair in a hurricane, yeah. Hitler has form yes, for does. lying. And I suppose the one thing that I can't really forgive Chamberlain for, I, I absolutely can understand why he's doing what he's doing, but I, I can't forgive him for not just looking at the guy yeah. and going, you lie. He, he, someone needs to grab him and shake him yeah. and say, wake up, yeah. see it for the situation that it really is. Yeah. But I suppose, here's, here's the other thing then. If the policy of appeasement hadn't been followed, right? So let's say we, we arrive at the Sudeten crisis. Yeah. There's no Munich conference. We reach that point where Chamberlain walks away. Right, where he flies back to England and says, no, no, not doing it. And then he gets the phone call and he goes back. Mm-hmm. Let's say he hadn't gone back. Yeah. Do we think that either a war would have come earlier or do we think Hitler would have backed down yeah. like he was going to over the Rhineland, like he probably would have done over the Anschluss? Or do yeah. we think by that point Hitler is riding the wave of his gambler's luck yeah. so much that he's going to keep pushing East. It's a it's it's a really interesting idea. What might have happened? Um, I think that maybe at this point it's too late to have stopped a war. Mm-hmm. I think if we'd have stood up to him earlier, 
to that, mm. then he may have, you know, stood back and decided against these courses, you know, especially in the in the Rhineland. Yeah. Um, I've already said before that I yeah, believe that nine thirty six. Yeah. That he, he could have stopped it yeah. dead there. But by time we get to Czechoslovakia, I don't know. Would anything have stopped him? I suppose the other thing is there is that little niggle, isn't there? That underlying thing about uh, the policy of appeasement that maybe Stalin was right and maybe, <laughs> maybe, just maybe Chamberlain, Deladier, all the rest of them are quite comfortable with the idea of Hitler moving east. Yeah. And they, they're not necessarily going to be upset if there's no. a war down the line. The the war that Hitler was planning, 1943 or so, against the Soviet yeah. Union, I don't think they'd have been upset no. if that had happened. I don't think so. So, conflict, probably inevitable, but not mm-hmm. necessarily involving everybody, everybody yeah. in the way that it did. Yeah. Interesting thing to think about. So, this is liable to come up in uh, an explain question. Could be. Yeah. It could be uh, a source question on it. Um, source question would be a good one. It, Especially on like a, a specific element of, yeah, of, of the music with, conference yeah, music or something yeah. like that. So. Um, probably too large a topic for it to be a four marker. I would have thought so, yeah, definitely. Um, huge banging somewhere in the background. And bullet point question, I think it would be addressed through two specific incidents wouldn't it it'd be something yeah. like the Munich conference uh, then the Nazi Soviet pact which led yeah. most to the war something like that yeah so, you, so you're more likely to have to address appeasement as an underlying yeah. thing rather than a question on its own I think so yeah but there's no guarantees no no <laughs> it is what it is yeah. <laughs> thank you very much for listening good luck in your exams <laughs>